Welcome back to another episode of Veteran Oversight Now, an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. I'm your host, Fred Baker. Each month on this podcast, we'll bring you highlights of the OIG's recent oversight activities and interview key stakeholders in the office's critical work for veterans. This is a special hotline edition of Veteran Oversight Now, and joining us today is Trina Rollins. Trina is the Director for Hotline Coordination within the VAOIG's Office of Healthcare Inspections. Trina is a board-certified physician assistant who worked at the VA North Texas Healthcare System for eight years prior to joining the VAOIG in 2011. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Fred. I'm glad to be here. Well, Trina, this is a somewhat difficult report to read, uh, but I think it provides some valuable lessons uh, that those in the uh, VHA community can learn from, and I hope that we can bring those out uh, during this conversation. So first, uh, let's talk about uh, where this inspection took place. So this inspection was that in Augusta, Georgia, um, the Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center. Um, that's the parent facility, but it actually took place at a CBOC, um, community-based outpatient clinic in Aiken, South Carolina. And Aiken, I believe, is about 20 minutes away from uh, uh, Augusta. And, and what, does, what does an outpatient center do? So an outpatient center has um, usually primary care, mental health. They may do labs. Um, they may have some imaging x-rays that can be done. But there's no inpatient care there. And um, most of our CBOCs or outpatient clinics will do just the routine appointments. And the, this outpatient center, was is it a large outpatient center? Are they all about the same size? Um, this one had a primary care mental health, so it was a, probably a medium size um, if, you, if you take all of the clinics in, in VA. Um, it had several services available. Great. Uh, and, and before we move into this report, we've, we've done work uh, at, uh, in, a, in Augusta uh, previously, correct? We have, and we've had several reports that actually pertain to this report. So, um, you know, for our listeners, if you want to go to this published report and look, um, we'll reference those in the in the published report. But, you know, specifically, these reports were published in 2019 and 2020, and, and then again in 2022, which um, have recommendations that we're we call them repeat recommendations. So the the issue is still not fixed. Um, those other recommendations from the, the reports in 2019-2020 um, have been closed. So to me, that shows a difficulty in sustaining improvement. Um, they've, when you have a repeat finding, that means they, they had some type of action plan in place. They um, had some sustained improvement for a period of time, um, enough for us to close out the recommendation. But now two, three years later, it's happening again or something similar is happening again. Right, right. So in our previous work, uh, one was based on a, a Sentinel event uh, and the others were patient safety events. Can you kind of explain uh, what those two are and, and the differences between them? So a, a Sentinel event is, is a specific criteria. Um, Joint Commission has that. VA has specific um, directives, policies that say 
this is what a sentinel event is and this is how you must investigate it. Patient safety events are more broad. It, it could be a death similar to a sentinel event, but it could be more so that um, permanent or temporary harm was caused to a, a veteran. So again, um, there are events that happen that have, have caused something untoward for the veteran and, um, and possibly death. And so the sentinel event would be the more severe of a patient safety event. So in all three of these reports, uh, they were based on uh, very serious implications Correct. Uh, to veteran care. So let's move on to this investigation. How did we receive this hotline? So this hotline came to us a, a little differently. Um, it was an unfortunate event uh, in the fall of 2021. A building security guard at the Aiken Seabock actually discovered the veteran unresponsive on the grounds of the Seabock. Um, so in, in investigating that, the VA police would come in, take a look. They sent it to our OIG's investigative uh, directorate. And um, since no criminal activity was confirmed, the investigators then turned it over to healthcare to review. And, and then you, you analyze it and, and decide whether or not uh, we need to conduct an inspection. Correct. And what led you to decide, yes, this is a, an inspection we should, we should follow up on? So what we normally do when we get a hotline complaint like this is actually go into the medical record, review directives to see was there, was there anything that we could find that was done incorrectly? or were there missteps, missed opportunities? And so in this case, we took a quick look at the medical record and we found, we found several missed opportunities, um, which are, you know, will be revealed later in the findings of the report. But um, yeah, the, it, it, we, with our quick review, it was obvious that there, there were some missteps that we needed to take a look at. So you launched the investigation. What, what is that process? Kind of walk me through those events. So when we open a hotline that we plan on publishing, we, dis, um, we assign a team to it. And um, that team is mostly uh, healthcare inspectors, their, their supervisors, a director. Um, we always have a physician on the team. We have an attorney advisor on the team. And um, those folks will um, develop a work plan and, and a list of documents they want to review. The documents could be directives from VHA. It could be um, practices of uh, guidelines for practicing care. It could be um, joint commission standards. It could be occupational health and safety standards. So again, we're, what we're looking at in this case was a suicide that occurred on the campus. So we're looking at the medical record to determine what kind of mental and physical medical care this patient had and did it contribute to him um, committing suicide. Is this work done here? Uh, is it done it's, Is that in, 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 in individual offices? Do you go on location? So we, we start, um, uh, you know, our staff is located across the country, and so they're usually not in the same office together. But when they we do a, a document request for VHA, we're getting those documents and putting them into a secure location where all of our staff can, well, all of, all of the staff on the team can access it. And so they're reviewing that, 
checking those, and that's how they develop questions for investigation. So they will then do a site visit. Um, you know, in this case, they wanted to see the location. Uh, the CBOC or the clinic location, and um, and then interview staff direct that had direct care with this patient, as well as the leadership at the facility and at the clinic. So how long does it take to draft a report like this? Usually four to five months. Um, it's it's a it's a long process because again we want to make sure that we're being thorough with our investigation that we're looking down all avenues to ensure that the information that we have is is accurate. And and so the team will work usually four to five months gathering information, doing the interviews, and then drafting the report. Great. So so this investigation, uh, really you found there was not one person or one misstep at fault, but there were several missteps as you as you spoke to earlier. Unfortunately, uh, yes. By, by yeah. staff at several points. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of walk us through the timeline? Sure. So I don't. I won't go through all of the details in his medical record. Um, that you know, the listeners can review that in the published report. But um, with, through the findings, there were many staff whose actions or, or inactions actually delayed the care for this patient. Um, the veteran actually initiated care with the VA in spring of 2021, meaning he had his intake appointment, his first appointment with a primary care provider, and at that appointment, he had positive mental health screens, meaning we, um, the VA has clinical reminders where we're doing screenings for depression, we're doing screenings for alcohol use, drug use, those types of things that are supposed to then um, alert staff providers um, of whether or not further consults or further care should be initiated. So he had positive mental health screens, but actually declined further mental health care at that appointment. So when, when you say these positive screens for depression, for alcohol misuse, uh, and uh, the mention of suicidal ideation, those, those should have been flagged somehow in his record? So they were flagged in his record. And the the next step would have been consults to mental health to help address these issues. At this point in time, this first appointment, the veteran actually declined to go to those appointments. So the uh, provider did not place those consults. Okay. And that is, that's correct. I mean, the, the patient has a right to refuse sure. care. So a couple of weeks later, he comes in, unfortunately sees another provider. And that provider failed to follow up on those positive screens. So again, what should have happened is you ask the patient again, you know, about his mental health. He had a positive depression screen. He had mentioned suicidal ideation at the previous appointment. And you would want to see a follow-up, a checking in on the patient to see how he's doing. But that was not done. So why didn't they do it? They were concerned with his pain care. So so at this point, he was there for pain. He was there for pain at the first uh, appointment. That was uh, one of his main complaints. Um, and then he was complaining of pain at the second appointment, too. Okay, great. So so the, so the first appointment, he went for pain. They identified these, these three. Uh, through the screenings, through identified the screenings. other issues. Uh, at this appointment, he did explain that the pain was severe enough that it was causing him to have thoughts of wanting to harm himself. So again, that triggered the reminder and triggered the first primary care provider to ask him, would you like to, me to make some 
uh, consults or appointments for you in mental health, which he declined. Right. So he goes the, back a second time. Goes back a second time. The second provider is addressing his pain by putting in a pain consult, but didn't make the correlation of depression, suicidal ideation also contributes to pain. Right. Okay. And so what happens next? Then a few weeks later, he comes in again um, for pain issues and sees a third primary care provider. Um, That provider actually did place a mental health consult, but that mental health consult was discontinued after the psychiatrist reviewed it because the psychiatrist recommended that um, additional testing be done. Um, The primary care provider thought the patient had um, a psychiatric disorder, and um, he may have, but additional testing was needed before the psychiatrist could make any type of determination. So when the consult was discontinued, that provider ordered additional testing, but not the test that the psychiatrist recommended. would have helped you know, to determine whether or not this patient had this specific psychiatric disorder. And um, when asked, the provider's like, I, I didn't really know about that test. I don't have a good understanding. So I, I couldn't tell you why I didn't order it. So he, but he just didn't order it? Just didn't do it. And so, so finally, the, the, next, the next step. The next step, so the pain consult had been placed by the second primary care provider, but um, it was not addressed timely. This patient wasn't scheduled for an appointment for 139 days, four and a half months it took for him to get an appointment in pain management clinic. And the provider who placed the consult did think the, the veteran would do better um, using VA care for pain management, but he wasn't, he meaning the, the veteran wasn't even offered community care by anyone. So, you know, per VA policy, if the, the appointment can't be made within VA timely, usually within 30 days, they should be referred to community care or at least offered community care, then the veteran has the the opportunity to say, no, I want to stay within VA. I'll wait for the appointment. But he wasn't offered. So he had to wait four and a half months for his first pain management clinic. Correct. Oh, all the while. Being uh, in pain. Being in pain. And again, being depressed and having suicidal thoughts. Did they give a reason why they didn't offer him community care? They said it was a, a, a missed opportunity. Um, the scheduling clerk should have, but didn't. So, so it sounds like he's meeting, you know, at least three different providers, right? What? Why was he meeting different providers uh, through this process? Why that's not a, the same one? Yeah, that's a good question because, again, in in VA, you're assigned a primary care provider that you're called your PCP and that um, in theory should be the main provider you see. That That's where all of your referrals start for specialty care. And that's how you gain continuity of care. Um, unfortunately, with this veteran, he saw one provider and then the next appointment saw a different provider and then the third appointment saw a third provider. So some of the reasons that why that could happen is um, maybe the 
provider had called in sick, and so someone was covering the clinic for for that person, or um, that person may have, have left the VA. So again, another provider had taken over those patients until a new provider could come in and, and be hired. So he finally got his appointment. Did, did, he, did he get to make that appointment? Yes, he did get that appointment, and um, in the summer of 2021. So he, you know, began care early in the spring and didn't get the appointment until summer. But at that appointment, the pain pain management clinic providers didn't do what they were supposed to do. So again, in pain management clinic, you should be screened for um, suicide depression, those types of things. It's actually called a Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Score. They should have that screening done if the appointment, the pain appointment is greater than 30 days from when the referral took place. And remember, this was 139 days later, and it should be done at every initial appointment. So this was the first time they saw this patient. So he should have had that done just because it was an initial appointment, but it was um, also should have been done because it was greater than 30 days after the referral took place. So do you know uh, that he finally got his pain addressed? They started addressing his pain. Unfortunately, you know, pain management is a very complex specialty. And um, in this case, they needed to try and find out what the cause of his pain was in order to treat it appropriately. In the meantime, the patient was still depressed, still having suicidal thoughts, and actually made a call to the Veterans Crisis Line, um, expressing that his pain was severe, chronic, and causing him suicidal thoughts. The VCL responder um, felt the patient needed urgent care, and so they felt that the veteran needed urgent referral for evaluation, and so contracted with the veteran, meaning verbally contracted, that um, the veteran would take a referral from them to the emergency room and, and go and be seen. And this veteran agreed to be seen in the emergency room. So he's traveling to the emergency room. The veteran's crisis line responder calls the emergency room at Augusta to let them know this patient's on his way and that he's suicidal. He's been having suicidal thoughts and he's had chronic pain that's contributed to this. Um, the VCL responder spoke to a nurse. Unfortunately, that nurse didn't tell any of the providers working in the emergency room that day. So when the patient shows up, he waited, was routinely trans, um, triaged for care. And um, when he saw the emergency provider, uh, told him about his pain, but didn't mention the suicidal ideation or depression, which is not that unusual. Again, you're not going to admit, that, you know, it, some, most of the time you have to be asked those questions to admit it. Um, so, so before we move on, though, why didn't the nurse uh, let the provider know about the Veterans Crisis Line call? So um, at this point in time, when this occurred, there was no requirement for documentation um, of the Veterans Crisis Line respond, uh, calling and, and giving the, the heads up to the, the staff. Um, the nurse did not have um, a, a clear answer why she didn't contact one of the emergency providers. Um, it, it was, again, another missed opportunity to help right. this veteran. So the nurse didn't tell the provider, the provider didn't know, the veteran didn't tell the provider. Exactly. And then, you know, when we st spoke to the provider, uh, the provider admitted, you know, if I had known this, ha this gentleman had um, suicidal thoughts, then I would be firstly directing him for mental health care. But unfortunately, this patient was discharged home 
And what happened with the follow-up from the Veterans Crisis Line? They're required to follow up on the call. Exactly. When a veteran makes a call to the Veterans Crisis Line, the responder there uh, will make a consult for suicide prevention coordinators to contact the patient. Um, That contact is made through a system... Um, specific to VCL. So just so we're clear, uh, the Veterans Crisis Line uh, uh, contacts a local suicide provider. Correct. A suicide prevention, prevention coordinator. coordinator. Or so this would have been someone either at the, facility. At, at the, at the center or, or at the uh, VA Medical Center. Exactly, one or the other. at the medical okay. center. So it would have been local. Exactly. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and so when, when that happens, the consult is sent and a suicide prevention uh, coordinator program um, person is supposed to contact the veteran to ensure that in this case he went to the emergency room, got care, and actually in this case the VCL responder had had mentioned, you know, I think this this veteran needs mental health and primary care follow up as well, so recommended additional appointments for this veteran, which did not occur either. The problem with this case is that the um, suicide prevention staff didn't follow up. They documented that the patient had, quote, follow up, but it was, they were, what they were referencing was the follow up that the emergency provider provided to the, the veteran. So it's a loophole. It's a loophole that we've, we um, noticed in one of our previous, it's a national report that on this and recommended to the USH to, to close that. To the who? The Undersecretary for Health and in the VA to um, help close that loophole. So the loophole so, is... So they referenced... Someone the, else making the, contact. The, the emergency care provider's care as a contact, even though... Uh, that provider did not know anything about exactly. the the call to the veterans crisis exactly. line. Exactly. So the suicide prevention coordinator, uh, suicide prevention case manager, did not contact the veteran directly, and then didn't follow up on the uh, recommendation for additional appointments either. So the veteran didn't get contact from a suicide prevention case manager and didn't get those additional appointments that the BCL responder felt he needed. Can you help me understand uh, why they a suicide prevention coordinator uh, would think like that, would not follow up? So would, it, you, you, again, it was... It, it, it was a misinterpretation of the policy, which um, is addressed in um, the report, Suicide Prevention Coordinators Need Improved Training, Guidance, and Oversight. It was a report that we published back in June of 2022. And and again, um, what we recommended was that there be better oversight of this contact Um it was interpreted that if anyone made contact, anyone at the VA made contact, then the patient was, quote, contacted in reference to the VCL um, consult. But unfortunately, you know, an emergency department provider who didn't have a clear understanding of this patient being suicidal, having depression, um, wasn't the appropriate person to make that contact. And, and so what we've recommended in that report was to close those, those gaps. Um, we, we have been told that there 
has been some some change in the policy locally um, as well, so that it, it is a requirement for the suicide prevention coordinator now to make direct contact him or herself. So in this event, we're back to the fall morning, uh, and the veteran was found dead, unfortunately. Yes. What, what happened next? So what happens, what should happen next is um, there should be some type of internal review to find what happened. Why did this happen? Were there any circumstances that could have prevented this from happening? And and so the, the first thing we noticed was the facility initiated a clinical review, meaning they, they Look, took a look at his his actual care, medical care, and um, they didn't identify any issues. Um, you know, we've already gone through several missed opportunities, just us talking in this podcast, but those weren't brought up in the internal clinical review that the facility did. Um, they didn't mention the long wait time. They didn't mention the missed follow-up by the suicide prevention case manager. Um, they didn't mi- or they didn't mention the um, screening that should have taken place, the suicide screening that should have taken place at pain management clinic. So again, uh, we we felt there were um, some gaps in that review. So so it. If you discovered all of these missteps clearly, how come they missed them? So I think part of the issue is that the clinical re- review was done by the service chief, meaning it stayed within the department, um, whether it be pain management, mental health, primary care. Uh, and they didn't use input from quality management and patient safety. You know, those departments are specifically um, have the expertise to do these types of quality reviews to help find what opportunities were missed, what um, system problems occurred that may have contributed to his death. So unfortunately, they didn't use that expertise, and so I think they they missed the mark on this specific review. So uh, in addition to the clinical review, they initiated a, another review as well, correct? Correct, an administrative review. It's called a um, root cause analysis, an RCA. And um, RCAs are, are meant to find or are meant to investigate problems and look for the root cause of those problems. So um, in this case, the director initiated the RCA and um, put together a team, but unfortunately that team didn't align with the requirements for VHA. So, you know, the team should be unbiased. They shouldn't have direct care. You know, they shouldn't have provided direct care to this patient. We need people on the RCA that um, can be objective. So when the director made the first team, he had members of that team that would have had direct care or at least um, there should have there was a conflict of interest for for that person. Um, the director then chartered um, a second team and made the same mistake again, had um, again people on the team that would have, conflicted with VHA guidance for that team. It took three times before the composition, just the the people on the RCA team met VHA requirements for policy for RCAs. So they 
ended up completing some quality management re- reviews, but again, these didn't follow policy as well. Um, a behavioral health autopsy must be done after every veteran suicide. Um, that's part of the policy. But this one compl- uh, contains some errors. Um, another requirement is to do a family interview tool contact, meaning they, they contact the veteran's family to ask questions uh, to, again, try and find um, reasons or determining factors of why this pet, uh, veteran uh, completed suicide. But staff said they couldn't find any family to contact. But again, when OIG looked in the medical records or documents pertaining to this veteran, two family members were identified. And, and then finally, um, the facility leaders should have done peer reviews on these providers, um, especially the ones that we, we pointed out that missed opportunities. Um, those did not start until OIG uh, requested the results of the peer reviews. So it's clear in this inspection that, that this veteran was uh, uh, not treated to the level that uh, they should have been treated, and, and, and there were many missteps along the way, uh, which is, which is a, again, a, a, a very sad and unfortunate Very unfortunate. Event. Yeah. So what were the recommendations we made? So we made nine recommendations to the facility director. Um, they are related to mental health screenings, consult management, referrals to community care, mandatory suicide risk assessments, communication of VCL referral information to emergency department providers, staff documentation and closure of VCL referrals, completed suicides on VA campuses, accurate completion of behavioral health autopsy, and the family interview tool contact forms, as well as peer reviews and clinical reviews. So, uh, you know, as you've heard throughout this podcast, those are all of the um, findings that we hit on. And, and those those sound very administrative. Uh, what what is the crux? What, what if you were to roll all of these recommendations up into one one sentence? What are we asking them to do? Well, it is administrative. The the but the reason VA puts these administrative policies guidelines in place is because they have been shown to improve patient care. So what was the response? Uh, how did VA respond to these recommendations? So they did, they concurred with the recommendations. Um, you know, again, this was a, a difficult uh, report to uh, discuss with, with VHA. Um, they had already made some changes uh, because, again, it takes us time to get through our editing process and... Um, and so in that time, VHA was already, the facility was already working on improving um, or making improvements to some of these issues that we brought up. And um, so they did concur with all of our recommendations. They had initially requested that three of our recommendations be closed at the time of publication, but we kept them open just to allow um, the facility time to submit actual documentation that support that the actions had been completed. Um, some of these actions will need uh, monitoring. So we'll be looking at three, six, nine months worth of data to make sure that there is sustained improvement with some of these actions. And, um, you know, hopefully the VA will continue to learn from, from these recommendations and make improvements. Are we hopeful that with this monitoring that, that they'll be able to sustain 
this level of improvement? We're, yes, we're, we're always we're always hopeful. Again, with this, we've got the network director, the Vision Seven network director is in concurrence. So, you know, Vision should be monitoring this as well, and um, with the the quote loophole that I mentioned previously on the documentation for the VCL response. Um, the Undersecretary for Health should be addressing that. But again, in this case, the facility has gone ahead and addressed it at a local level. So they're retraining staff with the understanding that, you know, they must make that initial contact themselves. So some positive moves already. Definitely. definitely. Great. Trina, any other thoughts? No, that's that's it. I, I hope um, our listeners will definitely um, access the report and uh, read through it. Uh, you know, the team took a lot of time to make sure they got all the facts in this. And um, we want to encourage everyone to read our reports just to, to ensure that we are doing our job, uh, you know, our job of oversight. Great. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to having you uh, uh, on the podcast soon. Thank you. Uh, as mentioned in this uh, podcast, uh, you can submit a complaint to the VAOIG uh, by phone, 1-800-488-8244, uh, or you can go to our website, www.va.gov forward slash OIG slash hotline, and fill out a, a, com- a hotline complaint there. However, if you are a veteran in crisis or someone who is concerned about one, please call the Veteran Crisis Line, dial 988, and then press 1. With that, I'll turn this podcast over to my co-host, Mary, and she'll provide the updates from our most recent uh, oversight work. Thanks, Fred. The VAOIG had a busy June on the Hill, testifying three times on VA care coordination, substance use disorder treatment programs in rural areas, and the status of several of VA's financial management systems. First, let's talk about Dr. Julie Kroviak's testimony on June 13th before the House Committee on Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Health. She's the Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections. Her testimony focused on numerous OIG healthcare inspection reports that identified deficiencies in VA care coordination. She specifically pointed out that patients transitioning from levels of care and among service lines which are specific areas of clinical care, such as cardiology or oncology, are at the most risk. In response to questions, Dr. Kroviak discussed the challenges in coordinating care for veterans when community care providers do not promptly return medical records to the Veterans Health Administration, or VHA. On June 14th, Dr. Kroviak made a return visit to the Hill but this time she testified before the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee to convey VHA's challenges in effectively meeting the needs of individuals with substance use disorders, especially within rural settings. She stressed that VA should improve its collaboration with third-party administrators and community care providers for high-risk veterans with complex mental health conditions. Dr. Kroviak answered questions about VA's opioid prescribing practices and the risks to patients when community care providers do not share appointment data and electronic health records with VA providers in a timely manner. Nicholas Dahl, the VA OIG's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations, testified on June 20th before the House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Technology Modernization. 
His testimony spotlighted the findings and recommendations of several OIG oversight reports that examined VA's financial management systems. He discussed the vulnerabilities and deficiencies VA encounters due to a significantly outdated system, the benefits of a modern system, and how VA might improve its deployment of a new system. In response to questions, Mr. Dahl explained the findings in numerous OIG reviews of failed information technology system implementations at VA. For more details on these hearings, you can check out the VA OIG website for the written congressional statements and recordings of opening statements. For videos of entire testimonies at the hearings, you can check out the Congressional Committee's websites. The VA OIG participated in a multi-agency investigation that resulted in charges alleging that three executives of a healthcare software and service company conspired to use telemarketers to reach out to targeted individuals, including Medicare, TRICARE, and CHAMP VA beneficiaries. The company executives were also charged with generating standardized orders for medically unnecessary orthotic braces and pain creams, and then getting doctors to sign the orders in exchange for kickbacks and bribes. The VA, Medicaid, and other sources paid those executives for the improperly prescribed devices and creams. The total loss to the government is $2.8 billion, including a more than $1 million loss to VA. The defendants were indicted in the Southern District of Florida. This investigation was conducted by the VA OIG, the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, the FBI, and the Department of Health and Human Services OIG. A VA OIG investigation on education benefits fraud revealed that the chief executive officer of a non-college degree granting technical school admitted to his role in the largest known incident of post-9-11 GI Bill benefits fraud prosecuted by the Department of Justice. The defendant and multiple co-conspirators defrauded the benefits program by falsifying attendance records, student grades, and professional certifications to conceal they were not complying with VA's 8515 rule. This rule is intended to ensure VA is paying fair market value tuition by requiring that at least 15% of enrolled students pay the same rate with non-VA funds. In addition to falsifying records and allowing students to complete coursework online at their own pace, the co-conspirators posed as students when contacted by the state approving agency to confirm graduation and job placement. The chief executive officer was sentenced in the District of Columbia to five years in prison, three years of supervised release, and restitution to VA of almost $105 million. The VA OIG regularly publishes fraud alerts. Visit our website to view the alert on stopping education benefits fraud. Please report any VA-approved school that is billing veterans, whose enrollment is funded by VA, a higher tuition rate than civilian students for the same courses. VA-approved schools that engage in education benefits fraud often advertise a lower tuition rate than they are billing VA for veteran student enrollments, offer discounts, tuition waivers, or scholarships exclusively to civilian students, 
or bill at least 20% more than non-VA-approved schools with similar course offerings. And finally, the offices of Inspector General from the VA and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, teamed up to investigate allegations that a mortgage lender failed to comply with program requirements when it originated and underwrote mortgages guaranteed by VA or insured by HUD's Federal Housing Administration. The requirements included maintaining quality control programs to prevent and correct underwriting deficiencies, self-reporting any materially deficient loans that they identify, and ensuring that the underwriting process is free from conflicts of interest. The lender entered into a civil settlement agreement under which it agreed to pay more than $23.7 million to resolve False Claims Act allegations. Of this amount, VA will receive more than $8 million. The OIG issued a pair of financial efficiency reports this month. The first one involved the VA New York Harbor healthcare system, specifically assessing open obligations, purchase card use, inventory and supply, and pharmacy operations. The inspection team could not verify that inactive obligations were reviewed and found unreconciled open obligations more than three months old. Purchase card holders did not always obtain prior approval for purchases or perform required reconciliations, and the team estimated that noncompliance errors led to about $44.1 million in question costs. Pharmacy deficiencies included observed drug costs higher than expected, turnover rates below recommended levels, a non-compliant inventory process, and inadequate reconciliation reporting. The healthcare system director concurred with the OIG's 14 recommendations, which included ensuring staff review open obligations and pharmacy reconciliations, update usage data, and use the prime vendor. The OIG's second financial efficiency inspection report released this month assessed the VA Philadelphia healthcare system. Inspectors found several opportunities to improve oversight and ensure the appropriate use of funds. The VA OIG found approximately 18,500 purchase transactions with potential noncompliance errors, leading to about $16 million in question costs. The healthcare system could also ensure stock levels and inventory values are recorded correctly, as well as improve the efficiency of its pharmacy by narrowing the gap between observed and expected drug costs, avoiding end-of-year purchases, and meeting requirements for monthly reconciliation reporting. VA concurred with the OIG's 12 recommendations made to the healthcare system director to improve these processes encourage greater cost efficiencies, and promote the responsible use of VA's appropriated funds. The VA OIG published a national review evaluating the transition of clinical care from the Department of Defense to VHA for service members with opioid use disorder, or OUD. Failure to document OUD history may decrease the likelihood of future providers using medically relevant information and may put patients at risk for adverse outcomes. 
the OIG conducted health record reviews for two groups identified from a sample of discharged service members with an OUD diagnosis, patients without an OUD diagnosis and VHA data, and patients who experienced an opioid-related death. Deficiencies were found in VHA primary care and mental health providers' documentation identifying the opioid use disorder in encounters, progress notes, and problem lists for both groups, despite having a diagnosis of OUD in DOD treatment records. The OIG made five recommendations to the VA Undersecretary for Health related to the identification of barriers for providers documenting OUD in electronic health records. Training on the use, navigation, and retrieval of DOD treatment record information, evaluation of the barriers to access and use of DOD treatment records, and evaluating and updating processes to the identification of patients with opioid use disorder. I'll wrap up this month's highlights with new Comprehensive Healthcare Inspection Program, or CHIP, reports. They are part of the OIG's overall efforts to ensure that the nation's veterans receive high-quality and timely VA health care services. The inspections are performed approximately every three years for each facility. The OIG selects and evaluates specific areas of focus on a rotating basis. This month's CHIP reports focused on the following facilities. VA North Texas Healthcare System in Dallas, New Mexico VA Healthcare System in Albuquerque, Manila VA Clinic in Pasay City, Philippines, Veterans Integrated Service Network 17, VA Heart of Texas Healthcare Network in Arlington, VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System in North Las Vegas, and Phoenix VA Healthcare System in Arizona. For more information about these and the other activities the VA OIG has been working on, go to our website at va.gov forward slash OIG. If you want to get emails whenever the VA OIG publishes a new report or issues a congressional statement, you can sign up with GovDelivery by going to our website and click on Email Alerts under the section labeled Stay Connected. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more highlights next month. Thanks for listening. This has been an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. Veteran Oversight Now is produced by the Office of Communications and Public Affairs and is available at va.gov forward slash OIG. Tune in monthly to hear how the VA OIG serves veterans, their families, and caregivers through meaningful independent oversight. Check out the website for more on the VA OIG oversight mission, read current reports, and keep up to date on the latest criminal investigations. Report potential crimes related to VA, waste or mismanagement, potential violations of laws, rules or regulations, or risks to patients, employees, or property to the OIG online or call the hotline at 1-800-488-8244. If you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 and speak with a qualified responder now.